Well, good morning. <laughs> Prepping for this message was a little different than normal. Uh, prep for an hour, sleep for three. <laughs> um, but we're here. <laughs> if you could turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, we'll continue our study in the book of Colossians. Um, and for those expecting a Christmas message, don't worry. But Colossians chapter 2. And we'll read from verse 1, and we're going to read the chapter in its entirety. We're not going to be looking at two specific verses, but we're just going to reference the chapter in its entirety and see what we have to learn from there this morning. But Colossians chapter 2, and reading from verse 1, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. And this is Paul speaking. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches, of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I, am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those, thing, those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourished, ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which, are, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in, in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. I want to begin this morning by examining why the Lord Jesus Christ had to come. Why the plan of salvation was made before the world was even created. And the answer to that is found right here in our text, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. And it reads, Buried with him in baptism, 
wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Why did he come? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And at the end of verse chapter, uh, at the end of verse 14, it says, he nailed all of it to his cross. Have you ever wondered why a title was written and nailed to the cross of Christ? The King of the Jews, as Pilate wrote it. And that the Jews said, no, we want to change it just slightly. We wanted to say, no, he said he was the king of the Jews. Or he said, I am the king of the Jews. But do you ever wonder why a title was written on the, and nailed to the cross? We see in the Roman world, when anybody was nailed to a cross, a list of their offenses was written out. And that was then nailed to the cross. And it was a public example. It was, it was to show everybody, this person deserves to die. This is the reason that they're here. It was as an example to say this is the list of offenses that they have committed and that's why they're on the cross. The reason Jesus was being crucified was because he claimed equality with God. He said that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was God. And so the title written and nailed to the cross was the reason, from the Jews' standpoint, of why Christ was on the cross. But in verse 14 in our text, it elaborates for us the real reason for the cross. You see, you and I each have a list of offenses that we have made against a holy God that were paid for by Christ's sacrifice. So instead of the title given to Jesus on the cross, imagine it's every sin that you have ever committed written out in a list. And what does it say in our text? Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So instead of the title of, that was written on uh, Jesus' cross, imagine it's a list of all your offenses, every single sin that you have ever committed in your life. That's what the text says. And he took it and he nailed it to the cross. Think about this for a second. If you were to only sin five times a day, and I think that's a very conservative number, highly conservative number, whether it's sinning in thought, whether it's sinning in doing something or not doing something, whether it's sinning in living your life and just not considering the things of God, whatever it might be, but just consider if you were to sin five times a day, and live your expected life on this earth of 77 years, you would sin roughly 140,000 times. And that's a highly conservative number. This isn't a short list of offenses. Just think about that for a second. If you were to only sin five times a day, in your life you would sin over 140,000 times. But what does our text say? blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. 
Every single sin that would be written out on that list was paid for by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. Now how bad is sin? Is sin really a terrible thing? How bad is it? Well, for one, it cost the Lord Jesus Christ his life. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 38, it says that the sin of man's heart is com- it's compared to the oozing, the oozing sores of a deadly plague. Like, that's disgusting. That's what it's compared to. That sin is as gross as the sores of a plague. And in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, it's compared to filthy garments, blood and dirt-stained garments. You ever smelled rotting clothes? It, it's a horrible smell. Absolutely horrible smell. But that's what sin's compared to. Filthy, absolutely disgusting garments. Sin is defiling, it's polluting, it's a staining thing. It stains the soul and tries to blot out the image of God. And according to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 8, it makes God loathe the sinner. But right, God, God loves everybody, right? God can't stand sin. And it makes God loathe the sinner. And according to Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 30, uh, 43, when the sinner sees his own sin, he loathes himself. <laughs> See, that's why humans are so prone to dismiss and to ignore or excuse their sins than they are to examine it. Because by examining your sin, you begin to loathe yourself. And you feel pain and you feel sorrow for the things that you've done. And so if a sinner looks at himself or herself and examines the sin in their life and begins to loathe themselves, what do you think the reaction of a holy God is? (laughs) And so sin pollutes It defiles and it stains and mars everything it touches. And we could go all throughout Scripture and see the effects of sin. But in Romans chapter 8, it says that all creation groans. That at the fall of mankind, that all of creation was subjected to futility. And that everything, the universe, the planets, the creatures, the animals that walk on the face of the earth, they're all groaning and they're anticipating the day of deliverance. They're looking forward to the Lord's return. But they're groaning. And so sin affects everything. And your sin doesn't only affect you, but it affects the entire universe. It's a very polluting thing. And the word pesha in Hebrew for sin signifies rebellion. It is the heart of defiance that is in the heart of every sinner. In Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 17, it says, We will certainly do whatsoever thing goes forth out of our own mouths. We'll do what we want. In other words, it's the characteristic of the sinner that he does exactly what he's desiring to do to the fullest. And we see that in the world. You ever heard a kid or an adult even, you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) I'm going to do what I want to do. I've had people that, you know, I'm their senior, and they've told me that in the workplace. Well, you can't tell me what to do. Yes, I can. (laughs) But people want to do what they want to do. Sin is rebellion. 
It's rebellion, and that's what the Hebrew word for sin means. And sin would not only unthrone God, that's its, that's its goal, to unseat God. But it would also, and I heard this from another speaker, ungod God. That's what sin wants to do. If the sinner had his way, there is no God and the sinner is God. That's the goal of mankind, right? That's what, every, what they're pursuing, is to come up with excuses for not following God. And to create things and spend billions upon billions and billions of dollars on proving to themselves, well, I can do this without God. <laughs> that God doesn't exist. We're just going to concentrate on this and just not consider him. It's the defiance of sin. Sin spits on the Savior. It defies God and demands to do its own will. That's what sin is. It's the rebellious nature of mankind. And so Christmas is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There's no other way. There's no other cure. Sin is a disease cured only by one thing, and that is the blood of the divine physician himself. And what is the cost of this sin? You know, as, as grotesque as sin is, what's the cost of sin? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, I'm sure we're all familiar with, uh, with the first couple of chapters of Genesis, but in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, it says, and this is the warning give, given to, to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die. What's the word used for death in that instance? What does it mean? In the day thou shalt surely die, it means a sudden and immediate physical death. A sudden and immediate physical death. Not spiritual separation, although that's a result of sin. But it's kind of preached and spoken of that, hey, you know, God didn't mean an actual severe punishment. It was, you know, it was just a spiritual separation and that man was allowed to live the rest of his days and, you know, eventually come back to God. No, the warning there given, it was a physical death. And we've kind of dulled or diluted the severity of sin in thinking that all God meant was spiritual death. But it was mercy granted right from the start that Adam and Eve weren't killed immediately upon sinning. That was God's right. He could have done that, and he would have been just in doing that. But yet it was mercy. And oftentimes the first act of mercy shown to humanity is seen as being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You know, that, so that they didn't eat of, of the tree of life and live in sin forever. But it's actually the fact that Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. That's the first act of mercy. And we see examples of that kind of judgment in Scripture. It's Ananias and Sapphira who, who lied to the Holy Spirit about money. And they were struck dead. Ananias falls down on the ground and it says he gave up the ghost. And then Sapphira, she's... She's confronted and she's told, you know, the men that buried your husband, they're just outside the door and she falls down and dies. Or how about Uzzah? 
who touched the Ark of the Covenant and was immediately struck down and killed. The wages of sin is death. Immediate death. Immediate death. Now this plan that we sort of talked about at the very beginning, you know, we, we see how disgusting and grotesque sin is. We see the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. All right, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. And we can thank God for that. But we know from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, and, and a multitude of other passages in the Old and New Testament, that the plan of salvation was created before the world was. Now, was humanity left in the dark about this, and was it sort of just a complete mystery to the world? Well, flip in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. And I just want us to see and get a clear picture that the plan of salvation and the love of God was here right from the very beginning. It was here before the world was. Right? The plan of salvation was made before the world was even created. But I just want us to see this morning that God's plan of salvation was very ingrained in the history of mankind. Genesis chapter 5 this is the book of the generations of Adam. Okay, so this is a genealogy. We usually skip this stuff. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him male and female, created he them, blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. In the days of Adam after he begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. Do you ever kind of wonder why certain people are mentioned in this genealogy? Like it doesn't say that Adam begat uh, Abel, you know, and then Abel was killed. Or, uh, you know, do you ever wonder why it's specific ones mentioned here? And we're going to see this, this genealogy. Now, we don't have the time to, to go through and read the entire chapter uh, of Genesis 5. But we see that from Adam, Adam comes Seth, and then it's Enosh, and Canaan, and Mahaliel, and Jared, and Enoch, then Methuselah, then Lamech, and then Noah. Okay, if you read through Genesis chapter 5, each one of those names is mentioned in a successive order. Why do we look at this? Well, let's take a look at what each of those names mean. Adam means red man from the earth. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahaliel, a tough one to say, means blessed God. Jared means come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death will bring it. And the interesting thing about Methuselah, he's the longest living human ever recorded. 969 years, I believe. You know what happened in the year that Methuselah died? The flood. You see the grace of God and the love that God has? He used the oldest man to say that in his death will bring it. Then the judgment came. It's wonderful. But Methuselah means his death will bring it. Lamech means despairing. And Noah means comforting. We're going to put all these together. 
what's being said in the genealogies mentioned in Genesis 5. It says that a red man from the earth, the appointed one who is mortal, he's appointed unto sorrow, but the blessed God comes down, teaching his death will bring it to the despairing, bringing comfort. Isn't that amazing? In the very genealogy in Genesis 5 is written and planted the plan of salvation. And I'll just read that again. A red man, one from the earth, fully man. The appointed one who is mortal, appointed unto sorrow. But the blessed God comes down, teaching his death will bring it to the despairing, bringing comfort. Isn't that amazing? I mean, oftentimes we just skip over the genealogies in the Bible, but there's a lot in there. And I think it's wonderful that God wouldn't leave it a mystery, but that he, by these generation after generation after generation, reveals the plan of salvation to mankind. Jesus didn't come to the earth just because. He came with a purpose, and he came to die. So who was Jesus? We'll flip back to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Who is Christ? For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The very thing he was accused of is the very thing he was. Jesus is God. <laughs> Jesus is God. Let's turn back to Luke chapter 2. Is there anywhere else in Scripture that proves that Jesus is God? And, and I just like this story here in Luke chapter 2. We'll read from verse 8. It says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told by, by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told 
unto them. I want you to look at the angels. Where did they come from? Well, the answer is found in, in verse 15. It says, And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. Well, the actual language here implies that the angels returned to heaven. So they came from heaven. And they were in heaven praising God. And then they sort of just zip down. And they declare how mind-blowing it is that the one who they were just praising is now seen in this child. And then they return to heaven and sing praises to God. The angels knew who it was. They knew and they realized the miracle that it was. They said, hey, everyone on earth, do you realize that we were just in heaven praising God and now this child is born who is God? <laughs> and that's the declaration that they make. Marvel at this humanity. You don't realize how special this is. And then they return back. Well, what were the shepherds doing as well? In verse 20, who do they worship? It says that they were glorifying and praising God. They knew who this child was as well. They actually abandoned their sheep. It says that the shepherds were watching their sheep at night. Why were they doing that? To protect their sheep. So that other creatures didn't come and kill the sheep or the sheep didn't start doing something stupid and walk away. And so they would be up at night, they would be watching, they would sleep with the sheep to make sure that everything was okay. But what do they do? They immediately, after the angels come and declare this wonderful news, they say, let's get out of here. And let's go to this child. And they abandon their sheep. They abandon their sheep. I think in a way it's because they realized that their job was no longer needed. I mean, what, do, what was John the Baptist's response to seeing Jesus walk towards him before his baptism? In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God! which taketh away the sin of the world. In a way, I think the shepherds realized that the sheep that they had been protecting were meaningless compared to the child that they were going to meet. It was a holy child. And that's a remarkable statement. Why? Because there's only been one child born in all of mankind's history that has been holy. Only one child. No one has ever produced a holy child except Mary by the power of the Spirit of God. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit as we read in Luke chapter 1 verse 15. But he was not holy. He was not sinless. He was not perfect. He was not without flaw. But the child placed, wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger the only holy child to ever be born. What a marvelous reality. Jesus entered holiness at birth, but we won't know that until we die for those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon once said, speaking of, of uh, you know, the Lord in, in his holiness compared to us, he said, man is hanging over the mouth of hell by a solitary plank, and the plank is rotten. <laughs> That's a pretty good line. 
Man is hanging over the mouth of hell by a solitary plank, and the plank is completely rotten. We have no hope. There is nothing in us that can save us. Yet we look at this child, the holy child, the only holy child ever born. And God determined to send his son into the world. The brightness of his glory and the express image of his person found in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He sent his son into the world to die for us. That's Christmas. That's the meaning of Christmas. And no matter what you may think or what feelings you might have about Christmas, and oftentimes it's an excited feeling, and you love the decorations, and you love getting together with family, but no matter what the feelings that you might have towards Christmas, unless you understand the ugliness of your own sin and embrace Jesus Christ, who alone by his death and resurrection can save you from that sin, you don't have any connection with Christmas. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, all acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. What was ultimately accomplished at the cross? Turn back to Colossians chapter 2. And we'll just read those verses 12 to 14 again. It's a very, there are a very powerful couple verses, but it says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. It's the power of God that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and it's the same power that saves us. Isn't that marvelous? And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him or made alive, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it, nailing it to his cross. That list of sins that we have committed, that record of debt, it was nailed to the cross of Christ. Praise God for that. And I love uh, Byron whenever he, he mentions, you know, how many sins were paid for on the cross. Was it one? Was it a couple? Was it a few? No, it was all. The list of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, were nailed to the cross of Christ. And he paid the penalty for our sin. All of it completely, fully. That's what was accomplished. That's what was done. And in Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. An infinite ma- amount. And that's actually a Jewish phrase for infinity. As far as the east is from the west, an infinite amount. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22, it says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. In other words, I can no longer see your sins any more than you can see the road in front of you during a dense fog. Blotted out. Gone. What was also accomplished at the cross? Verse 15. 
And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The devil's name, the great accuser, was essentially stripped away from him at the cross. The demonic powers no longer have anything on Christians. Why? Because Christ ever intercedes on our behalf. And the great accuser who accuses the brethren daily, the Lord Jesus Christ simply says, all that's been paid. All that's been paid and nothing sticks. Are you thankful for that? That the Lord Jesus Christ daily, continually intercedes on your behalf and declares that your sins are forgiven because of the sacrifice that he made. The Lamb as it had been slain. We still struggle and wrestle against principalities and powers this age. Yes, we do. They are real, and they are more powerful than we are. But they are powerless compared to God. Remember that. And it also says in verse 15, what does it say? It says it put, he put them to open shame. And I like this phrase. It's actually the same term that is used in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, when it speaks of Joseph wanting to divorce Mary, Mary privately after he found out she was pregnant. It says that Joseph did not want to expose her to public disgrace. It's the same term used here. But in this case, it's not to hide it. It's to tell the world and make a public display we see that the cross very publicly made an example out of Satan and his followers. Why? Because it revealed the absolute failure of the demonic powers to prevent God's plan of salvation. Satan had been trying since the very beginning. It's why he's called a murderer from the beginning. Why was Abel killed? Because Satan looked at Cain and Abel and said, Okay, Abel... It's most likely the man who the Lord Jesus Christ will eventually come down through. That genealogy. And so he wipes him out. But who's born in his place? Seth, which means appointed. <laughs> you see, Satan didn't foil any plan of God. And the cross publicly declares Satan's failure. And the last phrase here, triumphing over them in it. It's a military term. And it speaks of a Roman military procession. Now, after a battle that Rome had won, they would take the king of that city or that nation and any remaining survivors, and they would take them back to Rome and parade them through the streets. And the citizens of Rome would laugh and mock at them. That's what it was. And what does it say that our Lord did triumphing over them in it? That the cross made a public display of their absolute failure. Complete and utter failure. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. This has been the verse, the theme of the book of Colossians. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The message of Christmas is a message of salvation. That's what it is. And so, as we go and live this week, and as we look 
and you know we're opening gifts and celebrating family and celebrating the season and, and all that there is and there's a lot to be joyful in let's not forget that the lord jesus christ came to this world why not to look cute in a manger he was born to die and every day that he lived his life on this earth he knew that he would go to that cross and he would pray in the garden of gethsemane and he would be weeping and he would be in anguish pleading with his father if the cup could pass from him a holy child but yet by obedience he went to the cross and the list of ordinances that were against us that were contrary to us he nailed to his cross he paid the penalty for your sin and so this morning if you have not accepted the lord jesus christ as your personal savior do not delay do not delay the message of christmas is a message of salvation that you can be free in Christ and that the sins that have been committed that you have been that you have committed can be forgiven by a holy God let's just pray dear heavenly father we thank you for this time that we could open up your word we thank you for the message of Christmas a message of salvation a message of forgiveness that even though we are guilty of many sins Yet the power of the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice is so much greater than our sin. And that his sacrifice, that his blood blots out the entire list of sins that we have committed in our lives. Father, we pray for those here that are Christians who have placed their faith and trust in you, we pray that we might be excited about that, that that might cause us to worship you just even more and love you more deeply. We pray for those here who have not accepted you as their personal Savior. Father, might you draw them unto yourself and might they realize their need of a Savior. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you for today. We commit it to you. And we pray that as we go to our respective homes that you might keep us safe and that we might continue to think about our Lord Jesus Christ, giving him the glory, giving you the glory for what has been done for us. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.